When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's my question for you. Think about a principle or a cause that you really believe in. Would you die for it? No. I would like to believe that I would, but I am a coward. So no, I would not. Really? Yeah. Would you fight for it? Yes. What kind of fighting? Kind that doesn't involve physical pain. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I would die to protect the life of other people, but I don't know. Mm. In the moment. In the moment, I don't know what I would choose. I hope that I would, like, throw myself on the grenade for my children, but I don't know. Mm. I have a really slow reaction time, too, so it would (laughs) blow up before I decided what to do. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? going to tell you about Margaret Clitheroe. She lived in England in the 16th century and she died for her belief. She was pressed to death with her own front door. Oh. Over her lifetime, the the religious climate of England in the 1500s had this really interesting shift. I think it's the kind of shift that we don't think happens in history. It went from this climate of conformity to one of conflict bordering on almost warfare. For her belief, and crucially for the actions she took to fight for the cause, she was brutally slowly pressed to death in York in 1586. So I sat down with the eminent scholar and historian. Hello, my name is Peter, Peter Marshall, Marshall, professor of history at the University of Warwick. He's written so many books on religious history in the early modern era. It used to be called the Renaissance. He's actually had three books come out just this year on uh, Reformation history. He's talking about how the present creates the past. In the present, we decide what's important about a story or what's important about a person. And we will even invent things that didn't really happen in order for the story to mean something to us now. She's born in 1556. Henry VIII has taken the momentous step of breaking away from the Catholic Church. What follows from that is a more thoroughgoing Protestant Reformation, getting rid of the Catholic Mass, stripping altars and statues out of churches. But then in 1553, Queen Mary I, often known as Mary Tudor, or or sometimes in English historical memory as as Bloody Mary, comes to the throne and she tries to uh, put it all back. She gets somewhere with that process. So when Margaret Clitheroe is just uh, two and a half years old, a third of Henry VIII's children, Elizabeth, inherits the English throne uh, and once again uh, reinstates a form of Protestantism. So these are, are whirligig years of, of change that she is being um, born into and, and brought up in. Mm-hmm. 
So once Elizabeth is in charge, having seen what has happened with her siblings massacring Protestants and massacring Catholics, depending on which way they wanted to push the country, she decided she just wants everybody to shut up and quietly conform. And one of the most famous things ever said about her is that she had she no desire to make windows into men's hearts and secret thoughts. Elizabeth was quite happy for Catholics just to come to church and outwardly conform. Though um, she recognizes that, that, that those who broke the law did need to be dealt with rather more harshly. But she was uh, almost certainly not. Well, we know that she was not directly involved in this case. And it seems to have been local zealots who were pushing it forwards. And it was very controversial at the time. The, the issue really, it sounds a very simple one and in a way it is, is whether or not to go to church. So a simple Christian uh, act, which all Christians through hundreds of years have agreed, um, is an important part of their faith, regular, regular worship. But uh, the official church, the Church of England un- under Elizabeth, um, claims a monopoly on all the subjects in the realm, uh, and that monopoly is enforced by law. All of the Queen's subjects have to attend uh, weekly services in their local parish church um, or they will be charged with a criminal offense and forced to pay a fine. Um, and in fact, in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, nobody really knows what's going to happen next. The queen, of course, famously is unmarried, so there isn't an obvious Protestant succession in line. So maybe things will swing around yet again, as they have done in, in the past. Um, and we know, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, that Elizabeth reigns for 45 years and is able to pass the throne on to a Protestant successor. So there are, there are strong incentives, particularly in the early part of the reign, for people to kind of keep their, their heads down and, and not make a, a public protest, even if they're not particularly happy. And it's also fair to say that at the start, um, the, the Catholic Church itself, in the form of the papacy, is not giving a particularly strong steer on this question of whether it's okay to go to these Protestant services or not. The really important thing that doesn't happen in the course of the whole first decade of the reign is that the papacy does not condemn or excommunicate Elizabeth. And that largely happens for political reasons. So for for a time at least, there's a kind of benign confusion about what Catholics ought to do. Um, So that's the period really of Margaret Clitheroe's childhood. Things start to change in interesting ways around the end of that first decade. There's a quite serious Catholic rebellion in the north of England. The papacy finally excommunicates Elizabeth, uh, issues a bull saying that she is deposed from her throne as a heretic and that her Catholic subjects must not obey her and must even do whatever they can to overthrow her. This is also the period where you have the start of some real Catholic plots against Elizabeth. So the government is genuinely alarmed uh, about a, a Catholic threat. Uh, and so the, uh, the fines for not attending church go up really dramatically in 1581. Some uh, upper-class Catholic families are pretty much bankrupted by being made to, to part, pay those fines. The other thing that has happened is that a um, kind of missionary effort has begun. Young men from Catholic families who've been going abroad, uh, trained in Catholic seminaries, are coming back to England to offer an alternative to the official services, sacraments and, and secret masses. And then in 1585, outright war with Spain, 
It's not quite a religious war, but um, it's a war between these two powers with a strong religious colouring, Catholic Spain uh, against Protestant England. And at that point, and this is very relevant to our story, there's a fresh round of anti-Catholic legislation in 1585, which makes it treason for any priest ordained abroad to come into England, and crucially also it becomes treason to harbour, shelter or protect a Catholic priest. If you were a Catholic in England at the time, you must have felt so much like uh, that the stakes were extremely high and that there was a great possibility that there might be a Catholic victory. I mean, that Spain might win and they might be able to swing the pendulum back in the other direction. Oh, sure. Uh, You know, I think once once again, we have both the advantage and the disadvantage of of hindsight. And the idea that England is is going to remain a largely Protestant country wasn't at all clear to to people at at the time. It's important to stress that in in the, the middle of all of this, Catholics are going to be very, as we would say nowadays, conflicted. You know, if the Spanish actually invaded your country, you know, as a good Catholic, what would you want to do? Um, you know, you might quite like to see Catholicism brought back, but Catholicism brought back through foreign invasion. Eventually, a clear signal comes from Rome that uh, attending the Protestant services is unacceptable in, in any circumstances. It's imperiling your soul, and that good Catholics have to refuse. And the Latin verb here is recusare. So somebody who refuses to go to church becomes known as a recusant. In fact, not all Catholics were recusants. And there were other Catholic voices who were saying, well, actually, you can go to church, and that's just a matter of obeying the law. You know, you don't have to pay any attention to what the Protestant ministers are saying. You just turn up because that's what the Queen's ordered you to do, and it's a good subject. It's okay to do that. And we've got quite a lot of evidence that, that Catholics did do that, that sort of thing. So they, um, they exempted themselves from the fines by obeying the law and attending church, um, but maybe they would go to sleep. Maybe they'd keep their hats on. They might bring with them their Latin Catholic service books and ostentatiously read those at the back of the church. We even have some wonderful accounts from parts of the north of England. While the poor Protestant minister was trying to give his sermon, uh, Catholics would be firing guns into the roof of the church. And so, um, you know, there's a a range of possible responses. Uh But the idea is certainly starting to grow um, that uh, it isn't possible to be a good Catholic and to make these kind of of compromises. And at some point in the 1570s, to go back to our subject, Margaret Clitheroe, this young woman in York, um, is in a sense converted. She's probably a Catholic already in a broad sense, but she's converted to a stricter exercise of her faith, and she becomes a recusant. What's quite interesting is that her husband, John Clitheroe, the York butcher, he continues to obey the law and to conform and to be outwardly, at least, a a, a Protestant. Imagine if that was you and you didn't believe, but the Queen was saying, please, could we all just go? For the sake of peace and unity, go to church and we're all going to be unified in this. Would you go? Yes. You would? Yeah. I am much more on on the uh, side of... What matters is what's happening inside you and not where you're standing and where you're sitting. So would you go and you'd go and sleep or shoot your gun into the ceiling? I, w- I probably wouldn't shoot my gun. I would just, all right, go, sleep, do my needlepoint. So Margaret Clitheroe wouldn't. Where she crossed the line was in taking action to support Catholicism. She harbored priests. Uh, what's that? 
you were part of this spy network. There were all of these secret Catholic priests circulating around England who were secretly administering to Catholic families in their houses. Oh. But it's all very much like a, a spy network. A popular book about this period has the title God's Secret Agents, which is, I guess, how they might have wanted to think about themselves. I mean, they're literally in disguise and they sneak into people's homes, usually under the guise of like, this is a family tutor mm. or something like that. And they are bringing all the Catholic rites right. to Catholic families. Margaret Clitheroe's at the center of it. She harbored priests not just in her house, but she even rented nearby properties and would hide them there. And famously, the places that did hide priests, they would hire very secret and specialized architects to build secret hiding places into their houses. Priest holes. Priest holes. Oh, exactly. Okay, yeah. So it would be like a, a loose floorboard that, and, mm. and there would be a space just big enough for a priest and maybe some food in which he could hide away for maybe days until oh. the coast is clear, or secret cupboards, mm. bookshelves that opened up. She was at the center of that, not just har harboring one priest, but a bunch of them in the city of York. Uh, they have to have the proper vestments, the ceremonial robes that they wear for the celebration of mass. They have to have the chalices and the consecrated bread and the holy oil. That's where you could get busted. The, the problem is, will anybody see you engaged in the act ah. of that ritual and then... You're encouraging this secret undermining mm. of Elizabeth's authority. Right. From her perspective, you are endangering the peace and stability of the nation. That's treason. But she still had no desire to target women for this. Right. Queen Elizabeth had great empathy for women <laughs> and all of the crap that they were already having to put up with in life seems to have been a just described as a boy in her household. I think some of the older sources think it's one of her sons, but that seems less likely. So there's a, a servant boy or, or a neighbor's boy or somebody like that uh, who starts talking about this. And this is the information that, that leads to her arrest. She's arrested. She's questioned in, in both these forums. And eventually she is charged with having breached this statute which makes it a felony to shelter Catholic priests. And at that point, she does something very unusual, and this is what, this is what leads to the story taking a very strange uh, and very upsetting turn, which is that she refuses to plead. According to her confessor, her biographer, John Mush, um, it's because she doesn't want this youth who has either deliberately or inadvertently revealed her activities um, to be brought into court, to be questioned, to possibly have to commit perjury. The consequences of refusing to plead uh, are actually pretty, pretty dire. It's pretty terrible, so it involves lying down uh, on top of a sharp rock with a board. I think they actually use uh, a door from her house being laid on top of her. Weights being increasingly laid on the board till the pressure is so great that the sharp rock underneath breaks the, the, the back. It's an extended and, and rather agonizing death. Um, made still more horrific in these circumstances by the fact uh, that Margaret Clitheroe is um, quite possibly pregnant. Registration is now open on What's Her Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. 
Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. There are a significant number of English Catholics who are executed by the state in Elizabeth's reign. It's around about 200, um, about a, a 120 or so of those are priests, the others are lay people, so ordinary people of various kinds, um, but only three are women. We don't know exactly who was there. Presumably, uh, England was so divided there would have been people there who thought she deserved it and were happy to see this traitor die, who was uh, undercutting the security of England, and other people who thought, I am witnessing the death of a martyr. This woman is a saint. And it's very important to remember in, uh, that in the 16th century, uh, the status of martyr is really very, very hotly contended. Uh, St. Augustine had said centuries earlier that it is not the death that makes you a martyr, it is the cause. So not everybody who dies for their beliefs is a martyr, only somebody who dies for the truth is a martyr. What's going on here is a, a really important political and cultural struggle about the precise meaning of a horrible death. It's a bold, what we would call empowered, disobedient woman doing what nobody would have told her to do. And certainly the Catholic Church would have said, don't, yeah. you know, go and be an obedient domestic wife. And she didn't. Hmm. And she's killed for it. And then later on, she's made a saint. And now we have to applaud this. Yeah. Hmm. We, have to, we have to do a lot of kind of mental gymnastics to make that fit right. the mold of what a good Catholic martyr is. She's certainly not the Virgin Mary. Right. You know, she's not meek and mild and obedient and quiet. And she's not St. Catherine or like they, you know, died a virgin to protect my, you know. She's... Yeah, precisely. Yeah. She's none of those things. And she's not a nun. She's just this lower class lady who decided she's going to do this thing yeah. despite what everybody says. She chose to die. She She could have pled and not died she was just running this spy network <laughs> and then died and left all her kids to fend for themselves yeah she broke all the rules and yet she also is among the saints huh she's a really interesting complicated character nowadays we, we love to celebrate people boldly standing up for what they believe in hmm but they have to believe in the right thing. Right. We don't want everybody to boldly stand up for what they believe in. We want half of them to shut up. Right. Because, you know, no, not you. You're wrong. Yeah. But you over here, yes, you boldly stand up and fight for what you believe in. Do you admire martyrs? I do. Um, my martyrs. <laughs> <laughs> I admire anybody who is passionately dedicated to what they believe in. I would say even to some extent the people that I disagree with. It's really easy to be ironically detached from this world and to be aloof and above everything and to look down on any passionate excitement or passionate devotion to something. And I hate 
that. I take many things very, very seriously. And so for me, that is people who are willing to take things seriously and stand for them. I was hoping you would take that stance <laughs> because I lean the other way. Instead of seeing it as being aloof or too cool, I kind of see it more as a, a conscious stance that it's better not to be fighting each other. I could stand up for a cause and fight everybody else about it. And I might be right, I might be wrong. But in the end, what we have achieved is great conflict. I kind of wish we would just have a quiet conversation about it. Or even just everybody quietly live out what they believe in. Fighting for a cause means fighting. It means strife and conflict in culture. Surely there's a better way to get along with each other and to drive society in a way that's not through fighting. Hmm. And I guess I, I don't see those as always the same thing. Like I would say I fight for a cause by educating children on a certain issue better. And it's no, there's not any actual fighting. Putting that stuff out into the world mm -hmm. is part of fighting for that cause. I mean, almost never is actual fighting or even arguing the right way to do it. Arguing just solidifies everybody in their position. There have been moments where my children have seen me argue fiercely in places and times that were probably pretty inappropriate on the face of it for me to be having that argument. And even in times when like I knew there is no way that this is making any difference. I am not going to get through in this conversation. But it was important to me that my children see me taking that stand. And that does breed conflict. But I think my my instinct is always conflict in the defense of other weaker, more vulnerable people. I almost will never stand up for myself in any given scenario. But if I feel like I'm standing up for someone who is already being oppressed or harmed, then, then I am much more willing to make a public scene. So, I mean, you're right. So you can stand up for your cause. <laughs> what about if somebody is a passionate fascist? Right. And they're like, we need children to know about this. We yep. need to spread the word. We need to help save people from their ignorance. We're going to spread this message far and wide. I am going to passionately stand up for the cause of fascism again. You're going to be wrong at some point. But all you can do is try right now to do what you can do right now and stand up in the ways that you feel are appropriate right now. And I think there are flashpoints in history that we've seen where if people don't stand up, terrible things happen. There's I can't be bothered, which I think is, well, it's a position that only privileged people can take because only privileged people can say, I don't care about politics because you know it's not going to affect your life. I also have great respect for the moderators, for the people who manage to bring the extremes together and who are really good at compromising and really good at building coalitions and things because I'm terrible at that. It is hard for me to have a conversation with someone who is trying to argue nuance about something that is to me life and death yeah. for people. That to you kind of black and white. Yeah. Even yeah. though I don't believe in black and white intellectually. <laughs> you um, feel in black and white. I, I feel in black and white. And to me that's kind of what makes this story relevant and also strangely distant because the difference between 16th century Catholicism and 16th century Protestantism is like irrelevant. Right. With the benefit of hindsight, we can look at that more objectively and go, that's not life or death. Right. That's not really a big deal. I asked Peter Marshall, if you took Margaret Clitheroe and you put her in a time machine and brought her to 21st century mm. America, what would she make of it? 
I think she'd be very confused. I think she would probably imagine that uh, she was now in purgatory uh, and was having to sort of expiate her her sins surrounded by very strange instruments (laughs) of of torture and and, and confusion. But I do think we have to to bear in mind that these are people who in some ways we recognize, but their world is very, very different in in all kinds of of, of ways. The modern um, practice of Catholicism, I think, Margaret Clitheroe would find very strange if you took her to a, a Catholic mass in either England or the United States, she would think this was some kind of strange Lutheran service. It's performed in English rather than in Latin. That's what the Protestant heretics do. You know, why is the priest facing us rather than celebrating the sacrifice properly with his, uh, his back to us and towards the altar? Yeah, that would be a kind of second martyrdom for Margaret Clitheroe, I think, <laughs> and I wouldn't want to visit it on her. Everything that she died for, it's gone. It's gone. That Catholicism is gone. Project our culture a few centuries into the future. Right. And what things are they going to look back on us and be like, well, why did they cares? think that was a big deal? Yeah. They seriously thought about that? That's just so irrelevant in the big picture. We like to hold up martyrs as these great heroes, you know, people who made a stand, they made a difference, they died for what they believed in. I mean, especially in America, we just love that. But in reality, like when I actually look within, I think, wait, those people are zealots. (laughs) Those people refused to compromise. They Mm -hmm. couldn't see gray areas. They would not listen Mm -hmm. at all to the other side. We never say, look at the conformers. What heroes. Mm -hmm. Look at the people who just went with the flow. Wow, what heroic, (laughs) wise people who made a conscious choice Mm -hmm. not to breed conflict. I mean, we have these two camps of zealots, Republicans and Democrats. And it's very easy to just be like, no, you are wrong. How do we take 16th century you and plug you into this modern scenario? Right. You know, or you're quietly believing what you want, Mm -hmm. but not ruffling feathers, not overthrowing the system, not challenging the system. Right. It's different in that we're not under threat of death. Yeah. Yet. (laughs) For disagreeing with the political party in power. Mm -hmm. So what if I really, really, really want conservative Republicans to care about the environment? How can I frame this argument in a way that they will understand? Because as long as I keep using my values and my vocabulary about preservation and passing it on to the future. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's not their values, and they're never going to hear it. To, to flip the sides, let's say a conservative Republican is trying to speak liberal language to explain guns. Right. To explain and how important they, and fundamental they, they are. They better start doing that, or we're never going to understand each other. If we stopped emphasizing the heroism of standing up for what you believe, hmm. fighting for what you believe, then we might be able to hear each other. Rather than having to learn to speak the other language, Mm -hmm. why don't we learn to hear the Mm -hmm. other language? I think our American culture is so polarized because we love to champion fighting for what you believe in. Mm. And we do that because of our cultural heritage, because rooted in this religious conflict in England in Mm. the 16th century... The most extreme stance was the Puritan stance. And they made other Protestants uncomfortable with how hardcore they were. I mean, they were so extreme. They were too extreme for England 
that they had to leave. Yeah. And they eventually washed up on the shores of America. And nor the pilgrims, the founders of America. What if America had been founded by the conformers? What situation would we be in right now right. if we had all instead been taught that the great virtues are peace, tranquility, getting along, trying to understand? It's true for Margaret Clitheroe. It's true for everybody who died for their religious belief in this era. Looking back on them, we usually say they died for the freedom to believe whatever they wanted. They certainly did not. The Puritans did not believe in religious right. freedom. Margaret Clitheroe didn't die for the ability to believe whatever you wanted. They died, she died for, for the ability to be a Catholic. The truth. Yeah. They wanted to create a world where everybody believed what they thought. Right, exactly. They were right. Everybody else was wrong. In no way in the whole of the early modern era yeah. did anybody stand up for the right to believe whatever you want. That would require a belief that there is more than one possible way to be right. Exactly. They took the truth so seriously. Mm. This was a really important aspect of life. I guess I'm just so keenly aware of all the ways I have been and will be wrong <laughs> that it probably would just be best for me to shut up. and <laughs> Just let society quietly work its way along and i will just uh watch it all unfold i guess i'm afraid that because the reasonable people are going to choose that option but there will always be the unreasonable people who will use reasonable people's reluctance to impose themselves on others to impose themselves on others mm -hmm. and to harm people what if everybody said hey we don't impose ourselves on other people. Yeah, but what if we embrace? Never gonna happen. I don't have enough. I don't have enough faith in faith in humanity. So then that creates a scenario where I want to live and let live. Yep. But you're saying no. It'll it'll never be the case that everybody will live and let live. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we must fight. No. Therefore, I must fight. Okay. I am a hundred percent happy to let people live and let live, and I we need those people because. I need someone to run the world while I'm running the campaign. <laughs> there are a lot of people who die on the hill for no reason. And there are very occasionally the few who die on the hill and save everybody. I think she is a, a challenging figure more than anything else. She is someone who raises questions for us. Um, questions about... You know, what it uh, it means to be a to be a, a subject or a citizen? How far individual conscience uh, and the the right to nonconformity conflicts um, with uh, wider obligations to to society? And I think we probably have to believe that her her persecutors were motivated by what they saw as a kind of social good. She raises very interesting and very difficult questions, I think, about gender and, and the roles of of, of women. But I suppose the very fact that we are still talking about her 400 years on must mean that she is a, a figure who, who does have a kind of universal, if not uh, appeal, uh, a universal relevance, uh, we could say, because those sorts of questions about you know, how far compromise is a moral failure or how far compromise can actually be a, a social good and about how far we are prepared to go to stand up for what we believe to be right, those are questions that are still very much with us. 
Barack Obama said, even when you are 100% sure you're right, you still have to compromise. Yeah. Because the other people don't think you're right. Yeah, exactly. The other guy is 100% sure that he's, he's right. right. Yeah. Where I land is, and I think there are lots of valid places to land. One is live and let live. One is, this is above my pay grade. Um, and I land on Maya Angelou, you do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, you do better. And I, I feel called to continually educate myself and listen to as many of the other people who aren't being listened to and try to amplify those voices. And that's probably most of what I'm, my fight would be just amplifying voices that aren't being heard. If you want to learn more about Margaret Clitheroe or Reformation England, we have lots of resources on our website, links to Peter Marshall's books, uh, pictures and images, all kinds of good stuff on there. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast. If you want to make more episodes of this podcast happen, then feel free to click donate on the website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Music for this episode was provided by the Weber State University Choirs. This episode was edited by Daniel Foster Smith. And What's Your Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson.